welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy tour through mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 80, Gender Fuck the Gods with Andrea Lamb. And before we get into it, we would love to thank our newest patrons, Narla, Marianne, Sean, and Gretty, as well as our supporting producer-level patrons, Neil, Philip, Julie, Christina, Josh, Eeyore, Jessica, Maria, Cammie, Ryan, Phil Fresh, and Deborah. Yeah, you guys give good counsel all the time, unlike Loki. Unlike Loki. And uh, similarly, like, changeable, but also just way more dependable uh, are our legend-level patrons. Sandra, Audra, Mercedes, Ashley, Buggy, Ashley Marie, Leanne, and Cassie. You all definitely are full and complete people, and you have your soulmate. And it's you. You are your own soulmate. Oh, very good. It's also what we talk about in the episode. Yeah. We are sponsored this week by Audible. If you go to audible.com slash spirits or text the word spirits to 500-500, you can get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. Yo! Yeah. yeah, it's awesome. And we have some good suggestions later on in our mid-roll. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. You'll find out what's cool later. Jules, what were we drinking during this episode? So actually, uh, Andrea had a really good suggestion for our cocktail. So um, I went out and bought the thing that she suggested. And it is Butterfly PT. And basically, this is like a color changing tea that changes when you adapt the pH in the tea. Exactly. So it's like beautiful and blue and then you add some lemon and it turns purple. Yeah. Amazing. So so I made gin and tonics with it. Yeah. It's really good. It has like almost like lemongrassy flavor. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a really nice kind of pairing with a gin. With a really floral juniper. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really nice. Um, And I like too, that it's this sort of, you know, color changing, adapting fluidity, because that's what we're talking about today is gender fluid, a gender non-binary and uh, trans folklore throughout Mm -hmm. time. Yep. So it was the perfect choice for us. Yeah. And we uh, would also love to wish everybody out there a happy pride. Uh, It is a, a good and gay month. And I hope that everyone there, whether you're out or not, or queer or not, or unsure, or you just really like enamel pins, um, we love you and we see you and we are here for you. So it's folklore. Yeah, for sure. There's stories. You're represented. You matter to us. We're we're here to tell your stories. And no matter what kinds of mistakes you might have made today, they're not going to be as big as Loki's. That's true. (laughs) You'll see why. And one last thing, because Amanda won't do it for herself. No. But the Join the Party live show is this Saturday, and you can still get tickets. If you're in the New York area or you can find your way here, you should totally come out. Amanda, what's the link for that? It's bit.ly slash join the party live this Saturday, June 9th, 2018. Uh, so you can come and see Amanda play some dope D&D. And you can also see me in the little opening show, which I'm doing a... Um, a chapter from uh, Quidditch Through the Ages for Potterless. Oh, yeah. It is a full multitude family gathering. It it's going to be really fun. We're also going to be live streaming. So if you just check out our Twitter or the Join the Party Pod Twitter, we will give you that link. Hell yeah. So come. Come to it. It's going to be awesome. Oh, boy. I'm nervous. Well, I will leave you with Spirits Podcast Episode 80, Genderfuck the Gods with Andrea Lamb. We are so excited to welcome to the pod one of the first friends of the podcast, the publicist and writer and actor, Andrea Lamb. Hi, all. Well, welcome. Hello. I'm very excited to be here. Yes. You're definitely our most stylish guest. That's <laughs> like, no Andrew. offense to our previous guests, I mean, but Andrea brings it at like 13. <laughs> Plus, most of our guests, we do not see their outfits because they phone in, but mm-hmm. you you are killing it right now. Well, thank you very there's, much. There's I appreciate not much that. comparison. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Love it. Uh, Andrea, what are you going to bring us today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, gender fluidity and gender bending across mythologies. Yay! Yes. So we did a live version of this uh, at last year's FlameCon, FlameCon 2017. And uh, we're doing it again with some additional material. It was really fun to do this for the first time in front of an audience at FlameCon in Brooklyn in 2017. Um, it was Everyone was so friendly. People came who just didn't know what the show was. And it was like, this sounds fun. Yeah. Um, and we sold out the room. They had to turn people away. That did. was pretty cool. They did. It was, and we, we met a lot of listeners for the first time um, IRL there as well. But mm. we definitely want to be able to share it with the podcast. And the uh, kind of echoey room recording we had did not do the material justice. So uh, thank you for coming back and recording with us. Us. And yeah, if you want to catch our next panel, panel number two, Electric Boogaloo, you can do that, hopefully, crossed fingers, at FlameCon 2018. That's actually the panel's name is panel number two, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> I don't think that'll bring very many oh, names. <laughs> so when we talk about gender fluidity and gender bending, I don't want to be like, what is that? Because most of our listeners are very uh, savvy, mm-hmm. but we're talking about people who, in mythology and folklore, occupy multiple genders, uh, switch between genders, uh, don't identify with any particular gender and are more gender fluid, non-binary, not always with the vocabulary that we use now to describe ourselves, um, you know, wasn't always available then. Mm -hmm. So it is really cool, I think, to be able to, you know, look at stories of the past and be like, oh, like, yes, I see myself in that. And Mm -hmm. I I have words now to describe in a more nuanced way, um, you know, what this myth really has to offer. Hell yeah. Right. So the gods and goddesses and various deities that we're going to be talking about, I wouldn't say that they would have used pronouns, gender pronouns, the way that we understand them now Mm -hmm. in terms of orientation and representation and presentation. But we're going to do the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so much more nuanced now. (laughs) Okay, so I guess we'll start with, I believe, someone that um, most of our audience members will be familiar with already. uh, Loki. From Lucky. Norse mythology. I would hope so. I feel like you would have to be living under a non-superhero filled rock in order to not know who Loki is at this point. If you've been able to power to you to be able yeah. to avoid the uh, the, the Marvel net. <laughs> but tell us about Loki. Well, Loki has a lot of really fun, pretty wacky stories associated with him, some of which made it into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, some of which, for various reasons, did not. This one did not. <laughs> Although... Uh, as I think we'll talk about briefly, there's a little bit of an allusion to this story uh, in one of the early Thor films. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Loki, as we know him, is the Norse trickster god. Uh, Really fun, really kind of a bastard sometimes. (laughs) But this story takes place during the early days of the gods of Asgard, when Mm -hmm. Asgard was basically being built. This story is described in the Prose Edda by Snorri Sturluson. So essentially, the gods had created Midgard for the humans, and they had created Valhalla for the dead. And they were in the process of building up the realm of Asgard, Mm -hmm. and they decided that they needed essentially to make it a fortress, to make it as safe as possible for themselves and for the rest of the world. Makes sense. And I mean, as we know from Norse mythology the gods are aware that they will eventually die at some point. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So they were very concerned about these sorts of things. I would be too. <laughs> Me too. Me Facing too. my own mortality is kind of hard. Mm-hmm. 
So essentially the gods uh, undergo a search and they find a master builder who offers to build them these fortress-like walls. I believe the original deal was over the course of three seasons that he mm-hmm. would build these walls. In exchange, this mysterious master builder requested the hand in marriage of the goddess Freya. In addition, he also requested possession of the sun and moon. So not asking a lot, a really good bargain, right? I mean, yeah. no, no big deal. No big deal. Great. <laughs> I don't know why you would agree to that. <laughs> I mean, even if you he- hold it up against like the safety and continued existence of your like people, not having the sun and moon or like having ownership to like some person you don't even know, that is like a pretty, you know, equivalent thing. That's it's a it's definitely a ballsy deal that this guy's trying yeah, to make. Yeah, it's not like take my firstborn in exchange for the species. Like, oh, you know, okay, from from a like utilitarian <laughs> point of view, you can understand that. Sure. And so the the eyes here, the gods of Asgard. Mm, they had some qualms about the terms of this deal. I would. And so essentially they tried to bargain down this master builder and told him that if you can build the fortress walls of Asgard in one season over the course of one winter, then they would agree to give him Freya and okay. the sun and the moon. You can have it fast or you can have it cheap. <laughs> is, <laughs> Not it, both. is it the assumption being like, he can't do that. It'll be fine. Exactly. Okay. Yes. I mean, they didn't know who this guy was, but it seemed unlikely. Mm-hmm. And so the master builder uh, found this a little bit iffy, obviously, mm-hmm. and so he bargained harder. And eventually the the gods and the master builder worked out that, yes, the master builder would build the walls over the course of one winter, but he would also be allowed the help of his horse okay. named Smadufari. He was not allowed the help of any other human or humanoid being but he was allowed the help of his horse presumably to heft all the stone and wood and all of the heavy lifting literally speaking enough so he couldn't he couldn't private contract it he couldn't uh he couldn't delegate it out to other people he had to do it on his own pretty much yeah gotcha and so the person who oversaw this bargain this is important was loki okay Uh uh-oh why put your trickster god in charge of negotiations (laughs) right so loki was the one who said yeah okay uh let him have his horse essentially this is important (laughs) because as the winter wore on it was very clear that this master builder was not who he said he was. Oh, no. He built the walls much more quickly than the gods anticipated, and clearly they uh, they thought they were in trouble. Ooh. They would have to give up the goddess Freya. They'd have to give up the sun and moon. Not good. Good negotiating advice. Make sure you're willing to do what it is that you say you do. <laughs> exactly. And also, don't listen to your trickster god. <laughs> never. Just never. in general. <laughs> Ugh. So it was almost summertime, and the walls were nearly complete. The gods were rather worried. And so... They looked at Loki, Loki who makes bad decisions, Loki who, according to the Jesse Bjork translation of the prose Edda, I love this, Loki, son of Laufey, the one who counsels badly in most matters. (laughs) (laughs) Torched. I love it. Don't listen to the trickster god, don't listen to Loki. This, I do like that they, uh, for whether intentionally or not, they translated this pretty well into the Marvel films. Loki, in every incarnation, makes bad decisions. <laughs> yeah, or like listen to his advice and then do the opposite. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. So the gods, seeing that the walls were nearly complete, that they'd have to give up the sacrifice that they had technically agreed to, they went to Loki and said, you know what? You screwed this up for us. You fix it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Loki had a bit of a think. <laughs> and Loki had a look at Svathilfari, 
the master builder's giant horse mm-hmm. and decided, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to transform myself into a fecund mare and attract the horse, distract the horse, and the worlds will not be completed in time for summer. Loki goes, hold on one second. I have a plan. I'm a fuck that horse. Exactly. I'm a fuck that horse. God you know they, mm-hmm, they don't exactly say I'm gonna fuck that horse I mean, in the prose edda, but that's fair. <laughs> Not in that translation, at least. It's you read between the lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh man. Oh man, Loki. Oh man. I. I mean, there's there's better ways to distract people from work, mm-hmm. I guess. And unlike uh, any any plan that involves like a cross species transformation, might be too elaborate. <laughs> I feel like Loki is just like the Norse mythology equivalent to the disaster by trope. Oh, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty on brand. Oh, I identify hard. <laughs> Summer's almost here. Loki goes out to the field, having transformed himself into a beautiful fecund mare. And Svadilfari, the master builder's horse, perks his head up, yeah. sniffs the air, smells that this mare is ready. hot and ready and waiting for him. Oh my God. <laughs> Pheromones. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, and Svathupari drops everything he's carrying, runs off after Loki the mare. The master builder essentially goes, what the fuck? What's happening? I can't I can't finish these walls in time without my huge magical horse who has gone off with this trollop. <laughs> <laughs> I would have referred to Loki as a trollop constantly now. Oh, yes. Yeah. A trollop across species. <laughs> Yeah, a non-discriminatory trollop. Yeah, absolutely, like multi-gender inhabiting trollop. <laughs> Pretty it. much. Loki the mare leads Svavivari, the horse, on a chase, day and night. Again, the prose editor leaves this out, but things happen in the forest. As they do. <laughs> things will happen in the woods. <laughs> and then the sun rises on the first day of summer, and the walls are incomplete. Almost done. But incomplete. The master builder rages and rages because he was denied his end of the bargain. He was denied the hand in marriage of the goddess Freya. He was denied possession of the sun and moon. And in his rage, he revealed himself to the gods of Asgard. The master builder was actually a giant. Wow. And so the bargain was broken. Fairly, not fairly. You know, we don't decide these things. It's, It's between the gods and the giants. Sure. And Thor comes back. All of a sudden, from wherever he was. Thor's always coming and going, man. <laughs> Thor's always, like, just rolling out of some party back to back to Asgard, being like, what? What's up? What's going on? Thor's the guy that wanders into the bar when everyone's, like, wrapping up to leave. Be like, yo, time for shots! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, yes. Yeah. So Thor comes back from wherever he was and smashes the master builder giant's head in with his hammer. No. Solid choice. No need to worry about this bargain anymore. <laughs> Done deal. I mean, I guess so. So we would like to say it's all set. It's fine. You know, nothing doing, no harm done. I bet that there's no neat ending because there's no neat endings in folklore. <laughs> oh, no, never. I mean, Thor smashing a giant's head in with hammers, fairly neat, if a little bit messy. But the thing <laughs> is, nine months or whatever a horse's gestation period is later. I think it's close to a year. Yeah, I was going to say like 16 seems right to me. Amanda, <laughs> Google it. Google it, Amanda. Tell us that horse birth. 11 to 12 months. Yes, solid. So a year later. So about a year later, give or take, uh, Loki the mare, well, we actually don't know if he is still a mare at this time. We don't know if he is transformed back into his humanoid That was going to be God my question. Form. Yeah. Oh. We don't know exactly how he gave birth. The thing is, Loki got knocked up and Loki gave birth to a Sleipnir, an eight-legged gray horse. 
so much so much happening so there legs. how how did it become eight-legged we don't know probably through godly interference i mean i guess i'm asking specific questions about a tale that really defies logic so i i might retract that but i uh i don't know wow that's just it's so much <laughs> So yeah, I mean, Loki is the baby daddy of a lot of gods, goddesses, demigods, etc. Weird monster creatures. The rest of them we know about, uh, he sired them from either a female giantess or a female goddess. Uh, in this, Loki is actually the baby mama of Sleipnir, the eight-legged grey horse, who actually turns out uh, is given to Odin to be his steed. That is the part of the myth that you can see in, I believe it's either the first or the second Thor film. I'm pretty sure it's the first. Yes. You see him riding into battle. He's yeah, got there's a very legged. quick shot of Anthony Hopkins on this eight-legged horse's back. And This is my grandson, also my horse. <laughs> I just love Anthony Hopkins so much. He's so good. I know. I mean, if you follow him on Twitter, I don't think he's on Instagram, but if you follow Anthony Hopkins on Twitter, he's essentially your old eccentric artist uncle tony Mm -hmm. he's great i highly recommend following him he and patrick stewart are my favorite like dad ones (laughs) you're like oh my good my good granddad anthony hopkins and patrick stewart yeah patrick stewart's instagram is like very many selfies very many like you know his hand holding food in brooklyn and his dogs it's really cute and just like him super high recording stuff of himself occasionally yeah but i i love here that loki is a parent in lots of forms and sometimes you know to carries children sometimes doesn't and it's, it's a kind of cool i don't know early example of the fact that like you don't have to be a, a mom to like bear a child you don't have to be a woman to do that you don't have to be um you know matching the kind of way that we think child bearing and rearing actually happens Hell yeah. even though in this case there is some obviously additional changing of things involved <laughs> and talking of loki's incarnation in the marvel universe not so much in the films but in the comics uh some of the more recent comics reflect loki's canonical as it were gender fluidity mm-hmm. uh there are two instances that i was able to find uh, there's a storyline in which loki becomes lady loki is reincarnated in the body of the goddess sif mm-hmm. uh, in a woman's body and there's another story the agent of asgard uh, storyline in which uh, Loki is Loki, but Loki is also bisexual and gender fluid. Yeah. Hey! Hell yeah. And lots and lots and lots of fanfic in which Loki's gender identity is really, like, seriously and in a nuanced way and, like, beautifully written, um, you know, considered and dealt with and, and used in a, in a very cool manner. Mm. Because fanfic writers are often queer and non-binary and awesome. And like, we want to think and talk about this kind of stuff. So Mm. the fact that there is some, not only like source material, but also historical analog to be able to engage with that stuff, um, I think is, is really cool. And just to wrap that up, there is another instance of Norse gods gender transformation in contemporary transformative media. I'm not sure if a lot of uh, spirits listeners will be familiar with. I hesitate to say go and watch it but it's it's pretty fun especially if you're a little bit tipsy mm-hmm. but um the recent television series from new zealand called the almighty johnson yes yeah, yeah loki is characterized as a dude there's no real canonical gender fluidity going on with loki in particular in the almighty johnson's mm-hmm. but there is an episode i believe in the second series oh and to just to back this up a little bit the almighty johnson's was a television series in which most of the norse gods were reincarnated in New Zealand as Kiwi Bros. <laughs> Aww. 
<laughs> eventually they fold in some of the maori pantheon finally mm-hmm. um but it's largely to do with these variously slacker bros in and around new zealand uh dealing with what it means to be norse gods i mean if you're, if we're gonna think about ways to characterize gods in the modern times like since you know 2016 tm 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 we've been calling the greek gods fuck boys like yep. we, we know what we're doing <laughs> we know what's up oh yeah the almighty johnsons are definitely all fuck boys <laughs> so there is one episode though uh in the second series in which odin young early 20 something odin uh who's technically a student not really <laughs> classic name only yeah. yeah classic kiwi slacker but he wakes up one morning and he is in the body of a beautiful young woman what the fuck he <laughs> says what the fuck all his brothers say essentially it's it's a fairly fun episode the conclusion that all the brothers the gods come to is that for whatever reason uh, odin has been transformed into a woman because he needs to learn some sort of lesson or gain some sort of information sure he has to interact with all his fellow Pantheon members in this new body. Some of them figure it out, some of them have no idea. And who is this young, beautiful woman? Can we fuck her? Uh, It gets a little messy. Right. (laughs) Eventually, the resolution comes when at the end of the episode, Odin, again in the body of this beautiful young woman, sleeps with a goddess, specifically the character who's meant to represent the goddess Sjofin, Mm -hmm. who is the goddess of marriage, incidentally, this is important, Mm -hmm. sleeps with her and wakes up back in his normal male Odin body. (laughs) So are we meant to derive from that that he did have to, like, I don't know, like, like, is there a significance to the fact that it was sex that ended his uh, sojourn into the female body? I think the subtext, certainly, is that it was important. It was interesting that uh, he ended up sleeping with the goddess of marriage, yeah. um, who is canonically bisexual, which is mm. great. That turned out to be the knowledge he needed to find in order to transform back into his normal body. So, like, learning about commitment probably was the... Yeah, something like that. Or, you know, the classic, what do women want? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, which we've obviously seen done very badly in a lot of media. But, you know, there are also so many, like, valuable essays and memoirs by trans people who talk about the fact that, like, you know, having such a unique perspective on the way that gender is, like, perceived and coded in the world. You know, being able to say, like, you know, you know things that people who, you know, are cis and grow up as and present as one gender their whole lives, you know, don't necessarily know. So there is, like, knowledge to be gained in in uh, being gender fluid or, or trans. So that's kind of neat. Right, exactly. Existing in the in-between or moving between spaces. Mm-hmm. Liminal spaces? Boo-boo. We need a liminal spaces t-shirt, I think. Yeah. Mm. I think so. Which actually brings us really nicely to the next story that I'm going to tell, which is uh, the story of Tiresias from Greek mythology. Sweet. So Tiresias, I believe a lot of people will be familiar with him uh, from the Odyssey. He is essentially a seer. Uh, has the gift of prophecy. How he came to the gift of prophecy is a bit of a longer story. Mm-hmm. Tiresias' story is told in the Metamorphoses by Ovid and begins when he is walking along, going from A to B. We don't know, probably drinking. They're Greek. (laughs) But Tiresias encounters a pair of mating snakes in the middle of the road. Uh Uh-oh. Tiresias. Oh, buddy. Don't mess with the snakes. Don't mess with nature. Exactly, you would think. Mm. But Tiresias... One snake, I run away. Mm -hmm. Two snakes, I run away. (laughs) Don't do the thing, Tiresias. No, Tiresias, don't do it. Tiresias did the thing. Oh, Tiresias no. does the thing. 
So he encounters this pair of mating snakes, and instead of leaving well enough alone, making little snake babies or whatever, he decides to break up the happy couple, hits them with his staff. Oh. That was his first mistake. Always always a bad mistake. <laughs> and as punishment, uh, the goddess, the queen of the goddesses, Hera, decides, you know what? I'm going to transform you into a woman. I'm going to transform you into a woman for seven years. Tiresias lives as a woman for seven years. He becomes a priestess of Hera to try and regain her favor. You would hope, you would hope okay, that you would get it after that. the first good decision yeah. that Tiresias has made this mm-hmm. entire story. Exactly, yeah. He or she, since she is at this time living as a woman, mm-hmm. uh, she marries a man, has children by this man. Uh, one of those children, a daughter named Manto, turned out also to be a seer, so that at least passed down. Oh, cool. There we go. Wow. And after the end of seven long, or maybe not so long, as we'll see, after seven years, he encounters, she encounters another pair of mating snakes in the middle of the road. We don't have the same don't road. Don't touch them. They're just a lot of snakes all over Greece and a lot of them are fucking. I mean, sure. <laughs> Having learned his lesson from seven years previous, Tiresias leaves this pair of snakes alone. Good Again, move. little snake babies. Wonderful. And as a reward, Hera turns Tiresias back into his old body, that of a man. Mm-hmm. This seven-year span is very important to Tiresias' story. Through it, he uh, essentially uh, learned to see life from the other side of things. He basically leveled up in wisdom yeah. through experience. <laughs> the wisdom score is now plus three. Yeah, yeah. Turn into a woman because you messed with some snakes. Plus seven XP. After all this is over, sometime later in life, again, we don't know, it's a very squishy, timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, whatever. Mm-hmm. Zeus, king of the gods... King Fuckboy pulls in Tiresias into an argument that he's having with his wife, Hera. Oh, buddy, no. Uh-oh. You know that he's gonna side with Hera. <laughs> Come oh, on. No. Well, actually. <laughs> really? Alright, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so the argument that Zeus and Hera are having is that uh, Zeus believes that women get more pleasure out of sex, and Hera believes that men get more pleasure out of sex, and they pull in Tiresias because he has experienced both sides of this. I mean, assuming a binary, but he's okay. uh, he has experienced sex in two bodies. Yeah. Yeah. You would think that he would side with Hera that men have more pleasure, you know, because this is a patriarchal society, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. What is a clitoris? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. People, people still, Andrea, don't know that answer. They still <laughs> are searching elusively. <laughs> for the clitoris <laughs> Jesus and this is how we end up with a romantic comedy with Mel Gibson as the lead oh no no patriarchy no. we blame patriarchy for that <laughs> toxic masculinity makes men suffer too <laughs> this is true the thing is Tiresias sides with Zeus that women have more pleasure hmm. uh, you know what that means though is that these people are not communicating in bed properly. No. Because if Zeus is like, surely this experience must be better than what I'm experiencing, and so does Hera, you know, probably y'all need to talk and figure out which yum's align and like go for it a little bit better. So Tiresias had to actually live in the body of a woman to understand that there is a clitoris. It exists. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yay. Unfortunately, uh, Hera is not pleased with Tiresias' verdict. Uh-oh. She never is. Uh-oh. Yeah, right? Are there is there a story where like Hera woke up, had a great day and then slept early and didn't wake up in the middle of the night to pee? I think there's like two. 
you know, I have a soft spot for Hera. She does not have a happy life. Oh no, she is she is a wonderful goddess and deserves better. I know, but and, and we're team Hera here. Examples of women being dissatisfied and fucking doing something about it. You know, I very much appreciate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hera as well being the goddess of marriage. Uh, has a lot of experience with this. Yeah. Yikes. Hera, being deeply displeased, blinds Tiresias. Yeah. And ah. most of the stories that we have, including Tiresias's appearance in the Odyssey, are after this point, uh, when he is walking the world as a blind man. And mm. in T.S. Eliot's um, Wasteland, which is the place that I first learned Tiresias' name. It's just kind of a passing reference, but mm-hmm. characterized as an old blind man, kind of, you know, casting out for, for wisdom. Mm. Exactly. Zeus feels kind of bad for the dude and gives him the gift of prophecy. Previously, he read the signs, uh, he read the auguries, but uh, Zeus properly gave him the gift of foresight and apparently uh, the lifespan of seven men. So he spent a lot, he spent seven years in the body of a woman. He spent uh, almost seven lifetimes as an all blind man. Mm. Not sure if that balances out really, but... You know, he had seven years of good memories to think back on. That's true. That's true. That's true. And apparently uh, more wisdom than most people who experience life um, in one body. Exactly. I can't believe this is actually real. Uh, Julian, do you want to get some more G&T with me? Oh, yes, please. We are sponsored this week by Audible. I love being sponsored by Audible for lots of reasons, one of which is we get to recommend amazing books to you every single episode. Yeah. And I'm going to lead off with mine this month for Pride. It's The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. Nice. Maggie Nelson is, I think, maybe the smartest person writing today. Uh, The Argonauts came out in, I think, 2016, but I love the audiobook version because the author reads it. Um, And just hearing her talk about this book, it's like a mix of like autobiography, personal essay, uh, gender theory, queer theory, um, and almost like her writing is so cool in that it blends like academic uh, terms and like a lens on the world Mm -hmm. with like personal um, perspectives. And as a person who is married to someone that's non-binary, raising kids in like a blended family, um, you know, and, and Maggie just kind of writes about being queer and an academic and like deciding whether or not to have kids and what family means to her and just kind of her shifting identity as her, you know, partnership and family has changed over time. It's one of those books that like the minute I started reading it, wanted to start highlighting. And I realized that if I did, I would like make the book a colorful (laughs) like map. So listen, y'all, you really have to check out The Argonauts. That's an awesome choice. Good job. Thanks. I am recommending this week Circe by Madeline Miller. If you've never read The Song of Achilles, which is her previous book, it is unbelievably good. She does these amazing retellings of like really traditional Greek myths, usually from the perspective of characters that aren't usually being told these stories. Um, And oh my god, they're excellent. Um, Song of Achilles made me cry for like the last three chapters of the book just like straight on tears Ugh. um but oh it it's excellent we've talked about Cersei on the show before which yeah. is why I recommend it it's really really interesting and the perspective is really good and it's super feminist and I really really enjoy it and I think all of our listeners will too and you can enjoy either of these books in your audible free trial you get a 30-day free trial and a free book and that's at audible.com spirits you can also get that link by texting spirits to 500 500 
Yeah. So head over there, get your free trial and your free audiobook, and uh, tell us about it. Tell yeah, us which one you get. Pictures. If you're listening to it on a boat or on the beach or on a road trip, like we like to listen to our audiobooks, uh, or at work or your desk, like tweet us and, and let us know what your view is when you're listening. Yeah. All right. So thanks again, Audible. That's audible.com slash spirits or the word spirits to 500, 500. Now let's get back to the show. So we have another story of gender fluidity and gender bending in Ovid's Metamorphoses. And that story is that of Hermaphroditos. It's almost like you're metamorphosing from one gender to another. <laughs> they planned this really well. <laughs> Moved around index cards with the plot oh, yeah. and, you know, story structure. Oh yeah, they were like, what is the pun potential? So Hermaphroditos was a young god, um, a beautiful young god, the son of Hermes and mm -hmm. Aphrodite. All right. Name Smush basically the first Brangelina baby. Uh -huh. <laughs> if only they had named their first child Brangelina. <laughs> wow. I did not even put that together, but that is very good. Hermaphroditus was famously, enormously beautiful. Slim hipped, all of those things that you want in a, I don't know. In a person. <laughs> in a person, yeah. Androgynous uh, appearing is kind of best of both. I mean, as the son of the goddess of beauty and sexual love i mean you would expect that your kids would be at least a little bit pretty yeah, you would hope so i don't know my parents were athletes and met at like a college frat party and i turned out <laughs> you turned out fantastic i'm very pale and soft and enjoy reading and indoors so i'm just saying you know the world contains multitudes that was a good reading on the situation <laughs> i'm not wrong i mean i'm not saying you are <laughs> So Hermaphroditus, this beautiful, slim-hipped youth, goes and visits a spring to bathe. I don't know. I'm just picturing, like, dappled sunlight in a forest, mm. like, tossing hair over shoulders. Very likely, yes. It's a perfume commercial is what you just described. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> so while Hermaphroditus is bathing, nude, obviously, the naiad, the water nymph, Salmachus, glimpses him and instantly falls in love. Never spoke to the guy. Just, he's really pretty. So, it happens a lot in Greek mm -hmm. mythology. <laughs> she falls head over heels. Prays to the gods that she and he would never be parted. Uh-oh. Don't make an extreme and vague wish ever, never please. That. Nope, that's a monkey's paw, right? That's the reference I'm talking about? Yes, one paw. finger curls. Yes. yes. <sighs> the monkey's paw finger curls. And the gods say, okay, sure. And physically merge... Salmachus with Hermaphroditus in one body. Oh. Still incredibly beautiful, just two in one. Mm -hmm. Well, bang for your buck. Not as it what were. she meant, though. Not what she meant. What, at one not point, right she kind had of a body, and now she does not. She is half of one. And so Hermaphroditus carried on. You know, we don't know about his feelings about this, but carried on. And Salmachus and Hermaphroditus, having merged together, two in one, still very beautiful. Hermaphroditus in this state is where we get the word hermaphrodite the old outdated medical term hermaphrodite mm. which we now know as intersex yes um, and this is because uh, hermaphroditus's body after this transformation after this metamorphosis has breasts and a penis and we can actually see quite a few uh, artistic depictions of hermaphroditus post-transformation uh, in paintings uh, and notably in sculpture. The best known of these is called the Sleeping Hermaphroditus or the Borghese Hermaphroditus. There are various copies in museums around the world. Mm. Uh, and if you're in New York, you can see one in the Met. Oh, nice. But it's actually 
one of the first mythological sculptures I encountered as a kid, one of the most beautiful as well, typically, if not depicted as a figure standing, the sleeping hermaphroditus is depicted as a person lying mostly on their front in bed. Notably, one of my favorite words uh, derived from Greek, notably kalipigian. Kalipigos in ancient Greek means having beautiful buttocks. Yes. <laughs> Shout out to Perseus holding the head of Medusa in the sculpture hall. Best butt of all time. Yeah, it's just like gently cocked to one side. I know, there's very strong side definition. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about side definition on butts a lot. It's very good. I mean, my personal favorite butt uh, is... (laughs) I'm sorry to make you stoop to our level. (laughs) My most favorite ass in a museum may be, I believe it's called either the Fallen Gladiator or the Wounded Gladiator uh, by, I kid you not... A guy named Thomas Rimmer. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great. Match made in heaven. You can see one of the versions in the Met, I believe in the American courtyard. Yeah. Uh, yes. Bronze, uh, a gladiator, semi-clothed or nude, falling backwards into space. And honestly... Nice clenched glutes. I like it. Yes. <laughs> TMI, but every time I pass by that statue, I want to climb up on the plinth and just sort of plaster myself on it gently. <laughs> just just like- cup it. <laughs> Both hands cup it. (laughs) Well worth a visit, the American wing. Um, I I challenge you listeners, uh, hashtag my favorite arse. Please share with us photos of your favorite butts in sculpture and fine art. And of course, tag us in that. Obviously, tag at Spirits Podcast. (laughs) But yes, of course, the Greeks would have a word specifically to express the idea of a beautiful behind. Obviously. Yeah, I, I just, I assume that like when a society sort of evolves to an almost like decadent level, like all you do is just sit around and be like, well, that, that arse is really more Calipigian than whatever, you know, like you just really get into like specific taxonomy. Oh man, I love butts. <laughs> butts, they're great across, it doesn't matter what your gender is, doesn't matter what your orientation is, butts are great. Butts are just always good. And so the sleeping hermaphroditos is a Calipigian figure lying mostly on their front. Uh, from the front, you can see breasts, but when you round the sculpture, as it were, when you see the reverse side of it, you can see the penis and genitalia. Uh, it was a very popular subject uh, throughout art history, so it's nice to know that these things... I mean, we can't say uh, whether or not various cultures... to The depth to which various cultures accepted gender fluidity... Uh, intersex bodies and people things like that but it's it's it feels good to know that you can uh see these beautiful objects uh in museums around the world Mm -hmm. yeah it it is i suppose a form of objectification but especially when there's this history of horrible you know not just medical objectification but also like you know surgeries without people's consent and like horrible kind of botching of bodies in a effort to you know quote unquote like correct them it is much better to see a, you know, really lovely and heartfelt study of a body that is not just one thing. Um, and so I'm sure it gets boring after a while for a painter to paint like the chiseled Grecian, you know, traditionally masculine body and the like rounded Venus, you know, nymphs lying on a pool, traditional feminine body. But it is much cooler, more interesting to be liminal. Mm-hmm. And so I see why that would be of interest to painters and sculptors. I feel like fertility, the idea of fertility and the concept of marriage comes up a lot 
in these stories, I mean in general, sure, but particularly in these stories of gender-fluid godly bodies. Mm. Um, Hermaphroditus, in some regions, in some aspects, was worshipped as a god of marriage. Hmm, that's pretty cool. Right, the uniting of what is traditionally male and female, but actually we realize there's lots of other things. But I, I see the application. Mm-hmm. And Hermaphroditus is not the first uh, god in Greek mythology to have this kind of body, mm-hmm. uh, to represent these things. Uh, Hermaphroditus is actually preceded by Aphroditus, mm-hmm. uh, literally the male Aphrodite, who again, like Hermaphroditus, had breasts and a penis and uh, was the subject of a fair amount of cult worship across Greece. Yeah, hell yeah. There's a couple of different versions of Venus slash Aphrodite that um, are definitely pictured as gender fluid or um, intersex. Uh, There's actually a couple of my favorites are like the Venus Barbata, which is the bearded Venus, which I just, it's a good title. I love it. Um, So she's usually depicted as having a beard, wearing female attire, but her whole figure is that of a man. So it's uh, usually attributed to Aphrodite as well as Venus Mm. in those versions. Um, And she's typically depicted physically androgynous. Uh, I have a quote it says on her native cyprus aphrodite was worshipped as the venus barbata the bearded venus elsewhere as venus calva or bald venus aphrodite was shown with a man's bald head just like the priests of isis aristophanes calls her aphroditos a cypriot male name aphrodite appeared in battle armor in sparta and venus armata or armed venus became a renaissance convention which is really, really cool. So it sounds like almost an example of cross-dressing yeah. or, or like kind of cross, you know, sex presentation mm-hmm. with, you know, traditionally feminine or masculine body and then kind of the opposite style of presentation. Absolutely. Uh, there's actually an also really interesting version known as Aphrodite Urania. Uh, so she destroys a king who mates with her upon a mountaintop, quote, as a queen bee destroys a drone by tearing <gasps> out his sexual organs. Man, bees are the fucking most metal animal there is. Yes, I know they're in sex. Leave me alone. <laughs> I love her. Let me just say that. She's great. I love her. Yeah. She's my favorite. <laughs> Speaking of Aristophanes, not necessarily a specific god or goddess, but I feel we should probably touch on the speech that Aristophanes is supposed to have given in Plato's Symposium. Mm -hmm. And again, listeners may be familiar with this story uh, from the film Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And if you have not seen Hedwig, I highly recommend it. It is very good. Very, very good. It is a queer cinematic classic. There's a song in Hedwig and the Angry Inch which uh, paraphrases this story found in the Symposium, which is all about the origin of love the origin of human romantic and sexual relationships. Briefly, the story goes, is that there used to be three classes of human beings, and each of these classes of human being were essentially round. Uh, They were, this theme keeps coming up, two and one, Mm -hmm. uh, facing outwards. One class were two men, the children of the sun, as Hedvig sings. Uh, The other was uh, two women, children of the earth, And the third were one woman and one man, the children of the moon. And those were, in the text, described as uh, androgynous beings. Mm. These beings became too powerful. This is sort of a theme. Mm -hmm. These beings became too powerful. The gods feared them. Zeus in particular feared him. That fuck boy. Such an asshole. Masculinity so fragile. Zeus reached down with his lightning and split these beings apart. 
it kind of works out to how we may think of soulmates, uh, each of us searching for our other half mm -hmm. in a very binary way, but still. And so the Children of the Sun, the two men, describe the origin of uh, gay people, gay men. Uh, the Children of the Earth, the two women, lesbians. And the Children of the Moon, the men and women, are supposed to explain heterosexuality. Obviously, this leaves out bi and pansexuality and various other uh, orientations, but again, it's mythology. It's difficult to say. I'm sure these things were accounted for, but not thought of or described in the ways that we would now. Right, it's and one could argue that a bisexual person or a pansexual person's uh, soulmate in this situation could be either gender. Right, so. right. Yeah. Ju you just need to find a suitable other half. Exactly. Yeah, and this is also a story that we are telling so long after the fact, so some nuance is probably lost over time. Sure. Um, but frankly, any representation is positive representation to me in in terms of like obviously it has to be like a good depiction not a not a you know horrible and offensive one but even a hint of some flavor of like non-hetero cisgender you know people in history in mythology like we grab onto it you know and so even to see like this is kind of better than average um it's it's pretty neat and also to me it feels really good to know that uh at least as far as this story is concerned that human love is so great and so powerful that the gods themselves were afraid of it yeah, and had really to break nice. us apart in order to maintain control. It's Absolutely. a really nice feeling. Yeah. And there's no one right one, that it's it's just that longing for whatever puzzle piece fits into yours, exactly, you know, and, and yeah. matches your own. And so to move away from the mythology of the West, uh, one of my favorite goddesses or gods or deities, as it were, uh, is Guan Yin who is known by many names across Asia, East and South. Listeners may know her as the Goddess of Mercy. Hmm. She was a bodhisattva, an enlightened being of compassion, of mercy. The Chinese name Guan Yin comes down through the ages from the Sanskrit deity Avalokiteshvara. That was an amazing pronunciation. Best pronunciation oh, ever been on the so show. Happy. <laughs> My apologies to any Sanskrit experts. You probably nailed it. Don't don't play. <laughs> Guan Yin is derived from Avalokiteshvara um, and is depicted in art, in painting and in statuary at various times through Asian history as male or female. Cool. Sweet. Generally speaking, towards the modern era, uh, Guan Yin is more commonly depicted as female, but the male aspect of Guan Yin is definitely very present and well acknowledged. Cool. So according to the Lotus Sutra, one of the most important texts we have, so according to the Lotus Sutra, uh, Avalokiteshvara could assume any form needed uh, in order to transmit and to teach uh, the lessons of Dharma, of compassion, of mercy. So Avalokiteshvara could appear as a man, as a woman, as young or old, as human or animal or anything necessary really to reach a person. That's really profound. It, it really is like cutting through all of the societal BS that prevents us from seeing other people as the like complex individuals with, you know, like vivacious inner lives, just like our own, um, that society teaches us to be, you know, fearful of. Yes. And basically it was that whoever you are, whatever your place in life, Avalokiteshvara uh, had the power to come to you in whatever manner or aspect would, that you would respond to most. Yeah, that's like meeting your students where they are in the most mm -hmm. profound way. <laughs> meeting halfway, yeah. Yeah. Incidentally, uh, on a lighter note, that reminds me of something that happened to me 
my, I believe my very first summer when I moved to New York about seven years ago, I was on the A train and there was a street preacher on my subway car and he, he gave this sermon essentially to all of us. I remember very distinctly, he was talking at one point about how God, and it was specifically the Christian God that he referred to, he was talking about how God uh, is many things to many people. Mm-hmm. And he went and listed a whole mess of things that God could be or appear as to you. I just remember, and I, you know, it sounds silly, but I still love it. At one point he said to some people, God is a banana. (laughs) Right? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) If you're hungry and you are, you know, like, like there's so many ways in which that that can be true, Mm -hmm. even though you might, you know, laugh and smile like that, that to me is a really profound anecdote. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, thinking about, uh, gender fluid deities in retrospect you know the idea that god could be a banana to someone it's still a little silly but it it feels right Mm -hmm. yeah in the way that like when people say like i don't care if you're like black or white or purple like okay well that's not exactly what we mean like there are there's a much more in society and culture and history baggage to unpack blah blah blah. you're missing the nuance yeah so in this way it's like i don't care if you're male or female or a banana like that's that's not quite what what we mean because we're talking from a place of like personal experience and, and nuance but it's uh it's it's pretty awesome like that's how i describe bisexuality or pansexuality to people you know depending how you define and and identify as just like you know the like the the person that i want to be with and feel attracted to is in the body that is their body and like that you know regardless of their sex their gender their presentation you know that's them and that's why i love them and like to, to me it's it's hard almost to put myself in a mindset of you know having and experiencing attraction in a in a way that's more you know, defined than that. Because to me, it's just like, you know, you meet a person and and that's your person. Mm -hmm. And all of that is to say, really, the enlightenment of a bodhisattva, of a person, of anyone, really, uh, true enlightenment transcends gender, transcends the body. Yes. So, uh, as I've said, uh, depictions of uh, of Avalokiteshvara and Guan Yin uh, vary in terms of whether... Uh, he, she, or they were t- t- depicted as male or female, um, but Guan Yin, generally speaking, uh, popularly known as the goddess again of mercy, could well be considered male or female or genderless or agender. And so, having talked a bit about Guan Yin, about Avalokiteshvara, I'd love to talk a bit about the uh, composite Hindu god. Uh, and I apologize to. Uh, all Hindi-speaking listeners and friends, if I mispronounce this. We're constantly apologizing for that, so don't worry. <laughs> we're, we're like someone you invite over for dinner, and they're a little bit too eager, or they use the wrong utensil, or they like eat with their hands when they're meant to eat with a fork, or vice versa. And it's like, no, but I just, I really love love the food here, and I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm just trying to appreciate what... Uh, I mean, I work at a cheese shop, and a lot of times people walk in and be like, oh, you guys have uh, Asagio. I love Asagio cheese. I'm like, that's I, I'm so glad. I'm just going to cut you your cheese. I'm so sorry. <laughs> if it tastes good, it tastes good. And everything else is details. <laughs> and so related somewhat to the story of Avalokiteshvara is the story of the Hindu god Ardhanarishvara, a composite god, popularly known as the Lord who is half woman. Ardhanarishvara has a lot of different names uh, in Hindu and related mythologies, Uh Pretty much all of the names uh, allude in some way to this duality or multiplicity of gender. So Ardhana Rishvara is, again, we return to the idea of two in one. 
Mm-hmm. This time, unlike, say, Hermaphroditus, who displays the secondary and primary sexual characteristics of men and women, mm-hmm. Ardana Rishvara is literally split down the middle. Wow. Huh. When you look at them. Uh, one half, typically the right side of the body, the male half is half the god Shiva. Mm-hmm. The other half, the left side of the body, is the female half, uh, Parvati. Wow. Shiva and Parvati were married mm-hmm. in Hindu mythology. Essentially, Ardhana Rishvara uh, was meant to represent the inseparable union of the masculine and feminine principles of humanity of the universe. That's really sweet. That's awesome. Like, like in a person, in a marriage, if that applies, in society, in just, you know, thinking and psychology, it it makes so much sense to code those things as like, you know, different names we have for different, you know, experiences and like sets of characteristics and not as like two lanes, you must choose one, you must take one box, you must use one bathroom, like, (laughs) fuck you, you know. Hindu cosmology being very complicated in broad strokes, the masculine principle energy is called Purusha which is, we can say, the universal spirit. Uh, the feminine principle or energy is prakitri, or matter. And so the, the right half of Ardhana Rishvara, Shiva, is, among many things, the god of destruction and creation. And Parvati uh, is the goddess of fertility and strength and love. And again, uh, this idea of these two gods who are, in mythology, married, coming together in this composite god, literally, you know, the marriage of -hmm. two minds, of two bodies, Mm. was very much celebrated. So in many aspects, for many reasons, Ardhana Rishvara is enormously significant and is not the only composite god in Hindu and related mythologies, actually, uh, which is delightful. Mm -hmm. Not by the name Ardhana Rishvara, but this two-in-one deity is alluded to in the Mahabharata, uh, Shiva speaks of this aspect of himself, mm-hmm. uh, who is part female, part woman, mm-hmm. and I believe at one point uh, speaks to Parvati, alluding to their union in this body. Yeah, so it's not just like two separate selves that happen to share a body, but there is some like duality in both of those identities, which mm-hmm. is pretty dope. Ardhana Rishvara is not the only composite god in Hindu and related mythologies. Another significant deity is called Vaikuntha Kamalaja otherwise known as Lakshmi Narayana. This god uh, is a regional derivation of Ardhana Rishvara, I believe mostly found in Nepal and I think uh, the Kashmir region. So again, half and half, uh, the right half is male and is the god Vishnu, another of the great gods along with Shiva and Krishna. Uh, The left half is female and is the goddess Lakshmi. And again, these two gods, Vishnu and Lakshmi, in the mythology are married, Mm. are... Uh, linked together in other ways, including in this one body. It makes so much sense to me to have that as a kind of prevalent or at least a present characteristic um, in religion because, you know, you can read this story as sort of arguing that gender fluidity, gender fuckery, however you define that as being, you know, non-cis or non-heteronormative is a feature and not a bug. Like it gives you more more, more access, more experience, you know, more kind of enrichment, um, more perspective. Greater acknowledgement of the vastness of humanity. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you're a god, like, of course you want to experience and understand like the full scope of what life on this planet has to offer. Oh, for sure. And I think that it it kind of, especially these last two that you featured there, uh, definitely highlight the fact that like, 
human balance features both quote unquote the masculine and feminine like yeah. we're not wholly just feminine or wholly just masculine no matter how we're presenting because it is a spectrum of like you know how how we present and how we uh see ourselves yeah and that's true for you know cisgender people that's true for heterosexual people um when we start to kind of enforce the boundaries of this is masculine this is feminine this is what this person should be this is what that person should be you know that's really where we get into trouble and toxic cultures and patriarchy you know and and other toxic masculinity like like these forces that really impact everybody badly and yet you know we cling on to the thing that we know yeah, I think it's a good rule of thumb is, is that if the gods think it's important, it's probably important. So having a balance, that's important. Yeah, balance is definitely important. So I don't know. I mean, to me, this is why we do this project, um, because there is so much value in looking back at history and finding examples of yourself and finding messages that mean something to you. That's what stories are for. I don't know. It just, it, it means so much to me to be able to, to look back and see these examples, you know, as problematic as some of them were, maybe this wasn't what was intended, you know, by the representation of, of this gods, of these gods in this way. But like, we are the ones living now. We are the ones telling these stories. We are the ones who get to decide what they mean. I really enjoy stories like this, uh, where the gods and other mythological beings, I mean, in our contemporary framework, we might consider them trans or genderqueer or the like, gender fluid, partially just because they're pretty great stories and they speak to ancient peoples having perhaps a broader, a much broader view of divine and human sexuality than we might ordinarily think. But also yeah. being a genderqueer person, I'm not particularly religious or spiritual, but being a genderqueer person and someone who is very interested in these stories, it, it just genuinely feels really good to be able to see myself and my friends uh, in these stories in some way. Yeah. Um, and hopefully some of our listeners will feel similarly. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be your divine in order to be divine. Like, mm -hmm. like you know, this is something that um, human beings have considered to be worth worshipping in the past. And hopefully that means that we're only going to get better at loving people who are different going forward. Yeah. So Andrea, thank you so much for bringing us these myths. Oh, thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure. And remember, listeners, stay creepy, stay cool. Fuck the binary. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Spirits Podcast. We also have all our episodes, collaborations, and guest appearances, plus merch on our website, spiritspodcast.com. Come on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Throw us as little as $1 and get access to audio extras, recipe cards, director's commentaries, and patron-only live streams. And hey, if you like the show, please share us with your friends. That is the best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time. Bye.